As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about Ollie at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. In partnership with the UNT Alumni Association, the Ollie at UNT podcast presents the Alumni Spotlight series featuring exceptional alumni. This month's spotlight falls on the world-renowned saxophonist and composer Jeff Coffin. Jeff has quite an illustrious career under his belt as one of the top in-demand saxophonists in the world. He is a member of the legendary Dave Matthews Band and the recipient of three Grammy Awards. For 14 years, Jeff was also a member of the genre-defying Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. When he's not touring with the Dave Matthews Band or speaking with us on our podcast, Jeff also fronts for many other groups. To date, he has released over 15 solo CDs on Ear Up Records. Jeff is also an author and deeply involved with music education. He teaches improvisation at Vanderbilt University and we're proud to say is a 1990 graduate of our very own UNT College of Music. Jeff is also a huge supporter of UNT, taking time out of a tremendously busy schedule and for that we're extremely grateful. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, it's wonderful to have you here. I've been very uh, excited you. for Me our too. interview. I had the extreme good fortune to see you perform several shows at Bethel Woods. Oh, the yes. Performing, yeah, the mm-hmm. Performing Arts Center out there by the original Woodstock concert. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful place, isn't it? It's a gorgeous place up there. Yeah, I miss it. <laughs> I know. While you were playing... I had the experience of being surrounded by an extremely devoted fan base. The first thing everyone did was tell me how many times they've heard the Dave Matthews Band play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were very proud about it, and it was a terrific performance. You're a joy to watch and hear. Thank you. Thank you. Our, Our fans are amazing. You know, I've seen signs where people have been to 400 shows. Yes. Which is unbelievable. It's an incredibly devoted fan base, and they're amazing. They're amazing. That's what I was hearing around me. It was terrific, but I can understand why. It's a great oh, thank show. You. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. When you were growing up in Maine, were you always a music lover? Yeah. Oh, well, I was born in Massachusetts, and then I moved to Maine. I think I was in second grade. 
and started playing in the band program, I think in fourth, maybe we chose the instruments in fourth, started playing in fifth or something like that. But I knew pretty early on that this was what I wanted to do. I had a director who had a little trio and I believe it was early in seventh grade, he asked me if I would want to play in that trio. And, you know, they were doing gigs, two or three gigs a weekend. And so it was going to be through high school. We ended up moving right before high school. But but I had about a year of playing with his trio, making money. I bought my first horn back in the late 70s for, I think I spent like $800 on it. I had earned all that money myself. So, you know, I kind of got the bug and I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I think in a lot of ways for people in the arts, it's not necessarily a choice. It's sort of a, I mean, it's a lifestyle, you know, who we are and what we do. You can't just turn it on and off. It, it, it just is. And so I think that in a lot of ways, music, which has been my career path, sort of chose me as much as I chose it. I just agreed to it, I think, you know. Did you come from a musical family? Not really. Not really. Um, my sister played uh, in band and my parents didn't play at all. My grandmother and her sisters were from Nova Scotia. And so they played this wild Cape Breton stuff when she would play stride piano. But it was interesting because it wasn't it wasn't really music that that I gravitated towards. It wasn't like I heard it and went, oh, I want to play that. You know, just sort of, you know, what they did. And But no, I mean, I was a bit of a lone wolf in that sense of like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I mean, there was some pushback from my pops on it, and but I was like, well, I said, okay, but <laughs> I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> pushback, like, what do you mean? You'll never you'll yeah. never make a living playing music or being a musician, that kind of pushback? Yeah, the kind of pragmatic pushback that parents, you know, sort of share with their kids. I mean, I get it. I understand where it was yeah. coming from, but there was just no plan B for me. I, I wasn't like... Oh yeah, sure. Okay, well, I'll get a business degree and have a nine to five. I'm just thinking like, there's no way in. There's no way it's going to happen, you know. And uh, um, so it was, you know, it was kind of sink or swim. So when I went to North Texas, one of the reasons I went so far away is that I had to get away from all the distractions, hmm. you know. And I, I checked out a few other schools, and and UNT just felt like the right place to be for me. I I, I knew a couple of people there. And I had some family. My aunt was living down there at the time. So it just, it felt right, you know, and, and I was really glad that I sort of went with my intuition on that. And when students of mine ask about schools or Vanderbilt, where I teach now, or North Texas or NYU or wherever it may be, I just tell them, I said, man, I said, you have to visit. You have to go with your gut. You have to be intuitive about it and, and find the best place for you to learn. You know, however it is that you learn, be in that atmosphere because you need to be inspired. You need to be inspired to pick up your instrument every day and practice. If this is what you want to do, there's a bunch of people out there doing the same thing that you are. And it's not necessarily that you're going for the same gig, but you might be. So you need to be prepared. My students at Vanderbilt, I've been at Vanderbilt now for six and a half years. The things that we work on are, are very fundamental in nature. And my students are killing it. (laughs) So what inspires you today? Well, what doesn't inspire me today, quite honestly? I find inspiration in a lot of different places. I I find a lot of inspiration in the education world, in my students, in getting to know them as people, 
having the very profound honor of getting to teach them, to witness their process, to be part of that process, to, you know, you watch that light bulb go on when they understand something or they they play a solo. Like I was working with a student earlier this morning and they're playing a, a, a Benny Golson tune in his combo. And Benny Golson is a is a supreme writer and his stuff is not easy to play. And he kind of came into the lesson. And he was like, oh man, I got I just found out I'm soloing on this tune on whatever day it is, you know, it's like in a week or something. And he was freaking out. He's a freshman. And he, and he sounds pretty good. He's got a nice sound, and he, but he's not a music major, but he has to have it memorized and blah, blah, blah. So we went through, and I taught him how to memorize the tune this morning. And in, in within a period of about a half an hour, we went from him essentially not being able to play through the tune at all to having the tune memorized and playing a really beautiful solo over it. You know? Nice, nice. <laughs> in fact, one, one of the times he got done, and, and, he, and he started, because I, I said, so you're going to play it memorized this time. And he was like, oh, no. I said, come on, man. I said, you got it. I know you got it. So he played through it, and, and he got done. He started laughing. He's like, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you're right. <laughs> He's got to be having the best afternoon. I mean, how no, is I, that? I think so, man. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he was done with his lesson. He was like, man, he said, thank you so much. This was great. You know, I mean, so that's inspiring to me, like when they get it, because I look, I, I know that I'm a good teacher. I know that I can't reach everybody. But but one of the things that I learned at school was that everybody has a different way of learning. And so I'm fortunate in the sense that being a creative person, I can I can create my lessons to sort of fit their their way of learning. I'm not trying to push square peg into a round hole. And so I have to be malleable as a teacher so that when a student learns a certain way, I can sort of cater the lesson to them. If it's a larger ensemble, it's it's more challenging. And sometimes you kind of have to take the lead and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it, blah, 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 blah. But with an individual student, it's my lessons are very personalized. There's nothing cookie cutter about what I do. So that inspires me. So, you know, musically, composition inspires me, getting to record and play music with people that I love and whose musicality is off the charts is fantastic. I'm very fortunate in that respect. Nature inspires me tremendously. The people in my life, my family, my friends, getting to to spend time in this room, which is my studio, which is where I spend six to 12 hours a day, pretty much every day. You know, passion inspires me. People who are passionate, people who are not willing to settle for things. You know, I'm I'm a workaholic, but I love what I do, so it doesn't it doesn't feel like work to me. You know, I mean, I get overwhelmed sometimes, just like everybody else. But I'm doing a lot of different things. I've got a project called the Sax Loft with Kirk Whalem and Tia Fuller. That's going to be an online subscription based saxophone education site. I've got an app coming out called Connecting the Dots which is an improvisation app, which is teaching people who don't know how to improvise, how to improvise, like using some very specific, very simple ideas, kind of the same way that we teach people how to speak and read and write. You know, so it's equating it with the language. So there's a lot of things about the unfolding of education and the unfolding of 
sharing music and sort of philosophy and just sort of career ideas and professionalism with people that really inspires me. So I get into doing those things. I've also been writing children's books recently. No kidding. Which has been super fun. Um, the first one's about to uh, about to drop. And, and there's four others that I've written with a trumpet player in New York who's an illustrator called Today I Heard a New Word. And it's about musical instruments. And so that's been super fun. I never thought I would do that, but I've been doing that. So, I, I, you know, that's why I said, you know, like what doesn't inspire me? I don't know. I just like excellence. I like things of beauty. I like things that are different. The word improvisation has the Latin root of improvisus, which means unforeseen, unexpected, surprise. So I don't know. I mean, I, I like that. I enjoy that. I'm trying to roll with it and, and go with the flow on things. And it's challenging sometimes, but I don't know. I like it. I've been doing a series of interviews with authors, and many of them are children's writers. And mm -hmm. so I've been reading more children's books and young adult books. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I find that a lot of them actually explain things in an easier to understand way than say, if you picked up a book that someone had written for an adult mm -hmm. and it had all these things in it, which are interesting and I, they have their point and they're good to know, right. but sometimes it's just very interesting. I'm looking forward to your children's oh, book thanks. coming out because it's a great way to learn in a way that is uh, has a, kind of some interesting facts that you might not pick up from a, a more adult book. It is. You know, I saw one of your, earlier interviews, getting ready for us to talk. And you were talking about the healing power of music too. Yeah, very much so. I just have to tell you from personal experience, I totally agree. My oldest son was hit by a car. Mm. He was crossing the road. It was going 55 miles an hour. Mm. So he ended up in the trauma ICU in a oh coma. And one of the things the doctors said to me was, if he's in a coma, talk to him and play music. So I was doing that all the time. And I had music going and music going. And it was great stimulus for him. And the funny side was the doctors and the nurses would be singing whatever I'd been playing as they would go okay. from room to room. <laughs> but I think that's a very, very important aspect of music. Yeah. It just as you know, I don't need to tell you, it touches your soul. I mean, it is something about the sound and the music that just yeah. really is very healing. Absolutely. And very inspirational. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting when I, you know, because I've done a lot of clinics over the years. I've done well over 300 clinics uh, around the world and going into schools and music stores and universities, et cetera, et cetera. And even at one point I started asking a question, how many people have ever had goosebumps listening to music? Me. And <laughs> yeah, right. So I say, okay, you know, raise your hand. And, and so uh, when I first asked the question, I thought that it'd probably be maybe 40 to 60%. I mean, that sounds reasonable, right? It was 100%. And I remember when I asked it and like all the, all the hands went up, like I got goosebumps. <laughs> but so every time I've asked a question, it's been 100% of the people, which still freaks me out. So what is it about music that does that, you know? It touches you in a different way. Yeah. Poetry can kind of do mm -hmm. that, but music just, it just touches you. You don't even have to really be ready to pay attention. Yeah or understand it right, even. Right. It's just the total aspect of the sound of it. Yeah. 
is really incredible. Yeah, the idea that it's it's vibratory is really fascinating to me also that in light is both a particle and a wave. So that that from a physics standpoint, light is also sound. And people who have synesthesia who see colors and textures, there's different forms of synesthesia. But they are somehow their brain is acknowledging the the sound and putting it into color for them. And, uh, and, and that's a fascinating thing for me. One of my students at Vanderbilt has synesthesia. And, and I try not to talk with him too much about it because I, you know, I, I don't want to be disrespectful. And it's not like it's, it's not something abnormal, of course. And he, one of the first questions I asked him, I said, I said, when did you realize you had it? And he laughed. He said, he said man, he said, it's funny you would ask that. Because it was only a few years ago. Really? Because he just thought it was normal. Yeah. That's how everybody's heard things, saw things, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So the few people that I've known with synesthesia, when I've asked them, they've had interesting stories to tell about when they realized that that this this experience they were having was not an experience that most other people have. You know, that it's it's unusual. It's unique. It's unique. It's amazing. I'm just glad it works the way it works because I would certainly miss that part of my life. I would definitely miss that experience. Well, you've had a totally different experience with the COVID situation. Are you looking forward to getting back out on the road or have you just really enjoyed having the time to be able to be creative in your studio? Yeah. Well, you know, both. I'm fully vaccinated. My wife and I are both fully vaccinated, thankfully. It's been a very creative period for me. Um, I haven't had this sort of open time since the early 90s, quite honestly, right after I got out of school. And I didn't have the gear or the knowledge or the experience to do the things that I'm doing now. So at this point for me, you know, I've got four records that I'm going to release this year. I just released two uh, duo records, one with a saxophonist named Derek Brown another one with a cellist out in New Orleans named Helen Gillet. But I've got four other records I'm going to be releasing this year. Plus, I've been working on about 30 tunes. I put out a book of etudes. I did an EP last year, about just about a year ago, called Songs of Solitude, which I did here in the studio. And it's three tunes. It's about 26 minutes long. And it's super chill. And it's just beautiful. Like, it, it, like Even when I listen to it, which is rare, it just knocks me out. I can't wait to hear it. I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah. So I've been I've been exploring a lot of music, a lot of different cultures of music also. I've often told people if I had to go back and and do it again, I'd I'd probably be an ethnomusicologist and you know either teach or research or something because I'm I'm really fascinated by cultures of music. When I was at school, I got turned on to African music and in particular uh, field recordings out of the Congo and Nigerian Afropop. Um, King Sonny Ade. And it completely changed my perception of music and my trajectory also. I remember reading one time, and I don't know if it's true or not, it's just something I read, that as we grow older, we hear sounds. And there are some sounds that in our culture, in my culture here in the United States, I have not grown up hearing some of the music, say, in India. Mm -hmm. And that because of that, 
the receptors in your hearing apparatus isn't really tuned to hear that. Mm. Do you find that with different culture music sure. that you're not used to hearing those sounds? Yeah. I'm sure it could be worked on. I'm sure you could make yourself sensitive. To certainly. That. Yeah. I mean, it can certainly be worked on. One of the things that, that I notice when students come to me and they're young, they don't understand the accent yet. It would be like trying to learn French from a book. If you haven't heard someone speaking the language, how can you possibly understand how to to verbalize it, how to imitate it? So with music, the most important fundamental, of course, is listening and understanding not only how to listen, but even what to listen to. And and then how do, how do you integrate that into the music that you're playing? So for me, like I'm not teaching my students a particular style of music. I'm teaching them how to improvise using basically jazz standards. But the music that I give them to listen to is very wide. And there are certain people that they really need to pay attention to on their instruments to understand the mastery of the instrument and how it sounds when somebody has a particular mastery of the instrument. So getting saxophone players to listen to people like Charlie Parker, Cannonball Adderley, John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon, Ornette Coleman, Wayne Short, Joe Henderson, the list goes on and on and on. Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young. And then from that history, from that pool of history, when there's many more, of course, then comes other generations of history, getting into the contemporary players of today. And so understanding that history is important, although they're not going to be able to learn all of it in school. There's no way. So some of the things that that we're giving them, we're sort of opening doors that they haven't necessarily gone through yet. And it may be five years down there. Maybe they'll never go through it. But we're opening these doors to, to show them that there are doors. And even with the advanced improv class that I teach, one of the things we do is that they say, I want you to come in and, and have something ready to play for each other that has nothing to do with Western jazz. So they brought in Indian music. We played tube and throat singing. There's been Brazilian music. There's been a whole slew of things. You must love that class. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but the music we play, you know, that when we're working on it are standard tunes, but they're more advanced standard tunes. But I'm having them write things. I'm having them transcribe their own solos. I'm having them play each other's transcriptions also. So it's really, they're working collectively at the same time autonomously also, you know, but it's my approach is usually much more holistic. One of the things at North Texas when I was there was that with, with quote unquote jazz, whatever that word means anymore, to me, it's a blanket over a lot of different styles of um, sort of improvisationally based music and composition, et cetera. But one of the things that I found a little disconcerting, I guess I would say, is that we were studying four semesters of music history of classical European music. And about as far out as we got was kind of Bartok and Schoenberg and whatnot. I don't think that we ever got into like the field recordings Bartok was doing, which are phenomenal, by the way. We certainly never got into any African music, you know, jazz being an amalgam of European harmony and African rhythms and a lot of other stuff as well. But we never delved into that. And, and so I was curious, like, 
why are we studying four semesters of only European musical history and we're not studying anything else around the world? You know, we'd get into a little bit of stuff from the U.S., but not much. And, and so to me, and, and I think it's different now. I think there's a lot of other stuff that you can study there, of course. But I was enthralled. Like when I, when I first heard African music, I, just, I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And hearing children singing polyrhythms, and you could tell they were dancing. You could hear their feet on the ground. And everything, every piece of music was, for lack of a better term, ceremonial. You know, so it might be birth or death, a wedding, puberty rituals, good harvest rituals, bad harvest, rainy season, dry season, someone leaving the tribe, someone coming into the tribal areas, all these different things, right? And, you know, we hear, you know, let your art imitate your life. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is, there's no separation. It, it was amazing to me. I had never heard music like that. You know, they, they sing about everything. They dance about everything. And, you know, in black American music came from that, from the slavery times through the ports of New Orleans, primarily the port of New Orleans, uh, and the way that it worked its way up the Mississippi and just the, the, the tree that has grown from that is astonishing. But the roots, like if you think of, of New Orleans, even as the, like the, the base of the trunk of the tree, you know how the roots go below that. Like you can think of of yeah. the Caribbean, um, uh, South America, and Africa as those roots, and how deep those roots go uh, to have brought the tree to have brought the tree forth. Basically, when the difference between like the Chicago blues and the Delta blues and the New Orleans blues is profound, and then how people went to New York, they went to the West Coast, the Kansas City stuff also all these different geographic areas, they informed how this music sort of evolved. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to me. It is fascinating. And what you say just points to how important what you're doing uh, is in terms of music education. Yes, music education. It's not just jazz education. Yeah, just music. Yeah. And, and like you say, musicology. Just, yeah. I, I would think, I mean, it's important for everyone, but I can imagine how essential it would be for a really quality musician yeah. to be able to be exposed to things and yeah. to continue that exposure just to keep widening your skills and your way of hearing and writing and playing. Well, I think it keeps you open to things that are unusual. I mean, there's no, there's no end of sort of what you can study in the arts and in music in particular. I mean, it's unbelievable what's out there. If I told somebody that, that I know people that can sing three notes at a time, they'd be like, you're out of your mind. And I would play them some tube and throat singing. I went there, I think, three years ago now. I went to Tuva, and I took a group over there, and it was like going to another world. Yeah. And, uh, was, and I would go back in a, in a heartbeat. It took us 42 hours to get there. Wow. But it was worth it. JFK to Moscow, Moscow to Abakan. And then from Abakan, it was a seven-hour drive over the mountains to Kazil Tuva, which is right on the border of Mongolia, the, the, the northwest border of Mongolia. And it's big sky country. It's unbelievable. That had to have been incredible in so oh, many magical. ways. Yeah, yeah. It was magical. Yeah. Do you notice? I know you play with different people. Of course, you with the mm -hmm. Dave Matthews yep. band. You had your experience at playing with Bella. And do mm -hmm. you do you find that's very different when you play with different people as well? Do you find that that is a different yeah. experience for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've got sort of my first indoor gig this next weekend with actually a North Texas alum, uh, Keith Carlock on drums. Keith plays with Steely Dan. He played with Sting and uh, John Mayer, but his main gig is with Steely Dan now. But he lives here in town. Um, Victor Kraus on bass, who has played with everybody, Lyle Lovett, Bill Frizzell, and his sister Allison, of course, Allison Kraus, and a really wonderful guitarist named Mike Baguetta, who lives over in Knoxville. And so, you know, we're playing a bunch of original music. We're playing some of Victor's tunes. We're playing a bunch of my tunes and in uh, and, and one of Mike's. And so one, one of the things I love about that is that I get to play other people's music, that I get to hear and explore how they hear music. And in that not only inspires me, but it informs me in the way that I write also, in the way that I hear, the way that I share music. So I do love that. I, I love being part of a horn section with Dave Matthews, me and Rashawn Ross, the trumpet player in the, in the group, to be a team that our role is to sound like one person playing two instruments, basically. The intonation, the articulation, the dynamics or the emotional component of the music just the vibe, you know, just, just to understand what our role is. My role in the Flectones was, was different. It was one of four people, so almost one of four corners of a building. My role in my own group or groups is more of a leader role. I've got a trio with a guy named Jordan Pearlson, drummer, and Victor Kraus. And so my role in that is one of three people, you know. So, like, the, the understanding what the role is, I think, is, is a really important part of the success of what it is that you're doing. My role in a duet is to be 50% of the music. You know, my role in the studio, if I'm, if I'm going in and doing a studio session, could be any number of different things. It might be that I'm a soloist. It might be that I'm playing in a section. We did some music for Terrence Blanchard the other day in town, and I had to play a bunch of clarinet, like tenor or alto and clarinet. You just never know what it's going to be. So it's, it's exciting to open those possibilities up and, and, you got to be ready for pretty much anything. I play all the woodwinds, uh, no double reeds, but everything from bass flute to piccolo, bass clarinet, clarinet, all the saxophones. And I have a Hungarian terragato also, which which is a really cool instrument. Um, I'm, I'm going to play you a little snippet. Oh, yay. Good. That's great. So um, Let me see what that I, looks like. I know this is Sorry, only. listeners, but I can see yeah. it. <laughs> so uh, I'll try to describe it to you. It basically looks like a clarinet. It's the same colored wood. It's a dark wood, but it's a conical board, like a like a, uh, like an ice cream cone. So it's it looks similar to a clarinet, but it's also shaped like a soprano saxophone. It's got a longer bell joint to it, and it's got a series of holes that are about an inch and a half apart that go all the way around the bell, um, about an inch from the bottom, and then about four inches from the bottom. And I don't know why. I, I'm assuming that it helps the pitch in some sort of way. I don't know. But uh, it basically has sort of clarinet-looking fingerings at the top. But it, it plays like a soprano. It's in B-flat transposition like a soprano. And it has kind of this quirky little mouthpiece that is a cross between kind of a clarinet and a soprano mouthpiece. But it's got this really cool sound. Hang on a second. Say what it is again. It's a terogato, T-A-R-O. G-A-T-O. Okay, you can have everybody looking that up now, Jeff. It's it's a Hungarian instrument. And a guy named Josef Toth, or Josef, J-O-S-E-F, Toth, T-O-H, T-O-T, 
TH built this instrument. And I actually bought this instrument from the great Charles Lloyd, one of my absolute musical heroes. So that was very exciting also. Okay, so I'm going to play a little bit of this for you. I'm going to put a little reverb on it, and uh, so it'll sound even sweeter. Jeff, this is so funny. I had a whole list of questions prepared to talk to you and, and interview you. Haven't done any of them. I haven't done any of them. <laughs> You're so interesting to talk to. That I started out with my introduction and like I'm just, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to ask. I want to know well, what's in his head. <laughs> well, we're improvising, you know, that's that's what it is. It's you know, I mean, you're such a great conversationalist that we can kind of go anywhere with this. And it's you know, it's interesting too, because I I, I do a lot of interviews and and you know, talk to a lot of people. You have such a calming presence. It's so interesting. Thank you. You know, it's like I don't feel hurried. You know, I mean, I feel heard. I feel like we're just having this really great. Like I feel like I've known you forever. I know. It's, I- it's a weird thing. I don't know. I can't explain it any more than that. But I, I don't know if it's like this for everybody that talks to you. But it's it's great. It's so easy to talk to you. I just you know? enjoy hearing what you have to say. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. You have thank so you. much to say and you have so many interests and so many things that are important to you. And I agree with so many of them. You know, you talk about mm. the things that inspire you. They are so inspiring no matter what you do. You mm-hmm. know, those things, being sure. around young people that are passionate, there's like that energy. I love to walk on yeah. campus. I love to go to UNT and walk on the campus. It's yeah. just this energy about being around these young yeah. kids. I find it really wonderful you know it's, well, it's interesting great. because when 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 they come to school you know usually they're 18 sometimes i think maybe they're 17 coming in under the cusp but usually they're 18 and they're independent for the first time in their lives most of them and and they get to make their own decisions but they have no idea how to do it so so our role as educators then take on like a mentorship sort of a parental slash like uncle aunt kind of role, but almost kind of big brother in this weird way also, but we're educators. Like, so we have sort of this, this deep well that we're providing for them and watching them grow over a four year period is really astonishing. And they don't see, it's like watching your own hair grow and and they don't necessarily see it, but looking back, they will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I always tell people, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're talking about life. Well, we're using music as the metaphor. Right. And so I just, I just look at these students. They're just looking for their metaphor. They're just trying to find what their metaphor is because it's going to inform the rest of their lives. And so for some of them, there's a bunch of different metaphors. For some of them, it's, it's music primarily. And for others, it's not music at all. So I understand the energy you're talking about. You know, when you're walking around and, and you're seeing these young people that are 
hopefully wide open to their own possibilities in life, getting stuck in some kind of dogma too early or ever for that matter, that that they stay malleable, they stay open, that the idea of change as the only constant in our lives, I think is important. Yeah. Do you have other things besides music? I mean, you're a very creative person. Do you mm. is does music pretty much take your time for that? I know you write, you teach, you yeah. perform. Do you have time? Do you have do other things? Do you draw or I do. I, I draw a little bit. I do a lot of photography. I love that too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I've and I've done some shows. Um I just hung another show uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is a local coffee house that a friend of mine owns. And so I've got an entire wall of, of my own stuff, you know. Uh, it's a place called Portland Brew in an area in Nashville called 12 South. And it's a great coffee house. And, uh, and I've got a whole wall of like, I don't know, like 18 or 20 photos that I've had blown up to uh, 20 by 30, I guess. And it's, it's a real passion for me. I love it. Well, I think it yeah. helps you to see better. I mean, some people say, oh, you yeah. take pictures, you don't really see, get to see what you're looking at. But yeah. actually, no, I think it helps a person to see better because you're looking at light and different things. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And compositionally also, like I'll, I can be driving and I will see the picture. Yeah. Done. Right? I have to be like, okay, I got to pull over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so it gets to a point for me anyway, and I would imagine other photographers as well, that's just one of the ways we see. Yeah. And, and one of the things during quarantine, of course, is that I've been taking a lot of, a lot of selfies, <laughs> you know, in my yard, <laughs> in, in different places. There's a really cool app called Tintype, and you can take some really wild looking pictures. It's T-I-N-T-Y-P-E. It's basically like the old timey photos. And it's really cool. And so I, I, I do weird stuff. Like I was, I was out in my garden the other day. I don't know if, if you'll be able to see this. I, th I think you will. Oh my gosh, that's right? incredible! So I, I, there are all these branches as I was pulling up all this dead stuff from the gardens because uh, we're getting ready to replant, and I just kind of held them over my face. But this does a particular thing where the focal point will be in different places. So like, it almost looks like part of my head is cut off, and the branches are coming out of me. And you know, I mean, there's just so many different ways to try things and different ways of like I found this this icicle also and made it like oh, like a pair of glasses amazing do you have your photographs anywhere I didn't see that on your website N no they're not on the website you just have to go to the coffee house right I have to go to Nashville <laughs> that's okay gotta go to the coffee house right but I, I love quirky stuff I don't know if you can see this or not this uh, for those of you in the audience this is a squirrel jumping from <laughs> our peach tree to our roof with a tortilla in his mouth oh in mid-flight between the branch and the roof. Jeff, we got to make your podcast video. That's all there is to it. Oh, we got to go this, from audio to video. We've this, been talking about that. I think this is a good switch. It's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> That's, those squirrels, they can do anything. It's, it was crazy. And I knew he was getting ready to jump. I was watching him, and, and I could tell that he was getting ready to jump. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Sure enough, I got him. That's it. You got to have the eye, right? You got to be ready. And then some, some stuff like this. So I have this this little, um, it's like a little square crystal house that we keep one of those air plants in. Yes. Right? And so I just, it's kind of a prism. So I, I just kind of put the corner by my face and it's basically like giving me three different views 
of myself. You know, it's in my That's living incredible. room. So kind of like, Those are very good. You know, what can I do with what's here? And I, and I do that musically too. Like, like I'll literally make music with stuff that's within six feet of me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've got all sorts of percussion stuff over there and horns and whistles and keyboards. I, I have to say, and again, we should be video, Jeff, because the, the what's behind you is just what I would imagine mm. to be with a musician studio. It's like it's perfect mm-hmm. with the instruments mm-hmm. and you've yeah. got all the it's it's great. It's yeah. great. This is my creative space. And, yeah. and you know, and, and one of the, the beautiful things about this space also is that it's open to all my friends. You know, if, nice. if they want to come record, I'm like, man, I'm happy to push a button or push a button and play a horn, but it's free for them. And nice. uh, so so they're welcome to come here anytime and rehearse or record, you know, because I, I feel that that what has benefited me should benefit my community also, mm. you know, and, and, uh, and, and so there's a lot of musicians who can't necessarily afford to go into, you know, say Blackbird or Ocean Way or something like that. So they can come here and we can get great sounds. And there's not as much isolation, of course, but I've made my bathroom into a little ISO booth and we put the guitar amp on the, on the stairway coming up. And I've done like my last seven projects here. I'm up to like 18 solo records now. And I've, I've done uh, the last seven or eight of them right here in this room. And you're just getting started. Just getting started. Yeah. <laughs> just getting started. Hey, this has been great. Yeah, thanks. I have enjoyed this so much, and I know people have learned a lot. I know I have. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I always learn a lot talking to people about this stuff, too, you know. The, the website, if they want to know, is jeffcoffin.com, and uh, sort of all the different things that I do, they can find out right there with them. And the Sax Loft is thesaxloft.com. And uh, that's, again, with Kirk Whalem and Tia Fuller. It's online, subscription-based saxophone education that's going to be launching in may so we've been working on that for the last year and i've been thinking about it for the last three so i'm very excited to to have this thing come to fruition great that's wonderful well thank you again i appreciate it so much my pleasure susan thank you this has been susan supak speaking from the osher lifelong learning institute at the university of north texas with the world-renowned jeff coffin Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends.